Welcome to this special episode of Open Swim. This is our 16th episode. 16 candles. Our sweet 16, as Brian has, has dubbed it. You're here with your host, Hallie Bram Kogelshots. Eric Kogelshots. Brian Andrew Jasinski. And Jennifer Chosala. This summer, we wanted to get together to talk a little bit about the things that are inspiring us or have our interest peaked, if you will. So we thought we'd do a little bit of a cool hunting episode for you. with you, Mrs. Salaf. What's been exciting you around the interwebs? I think it's something that I sent you actually recently, Hallie. It's the Stabilo's Highlight the Remarkable campaign. I saw this. I think it just popped up on my feed. Stabilo, which you guys probably remember and know, they make highlighters, pens. They're the world's largest manufacturer of highlighter pens, actually. And um, they have this amazing campaign, Highlight the Remarkable. They highlight women in history who have been overlooked, but who have made incredible contributions and made their mark in history without us knowing about it. So they, they've highlighted women like um, Lisa Meitner. Um, so there's a great photo of her. I think this looks like the 1920s or 30s. But basically the caption says, highlight the remarkable Lisa Meitner, discoverer of nuclear fission, whose male partner was awarded the Nobel Prize. So it's a photo of her with her male colleagues and the Stabilo yellow highlighter, you know, has highlighted her face. There's another one with Katherine Johnson. We know her from the movie Hidden Figures, and she was the NASA mathematician responsible for sending the Apollo 2 out to space and actually to bring it back safely. And then the last one um, is Edith Wilson, former first lady, um, who assumed her husband's presidential responsibilities after he was paralyzed by a stroke. So there's a great photo of President Wilson. He looks like he's kicking off a baseball game. And then you see Edith in the background highlighted. Um, and then that NASA photo with Katherine Johnson, you see you know, everyone's just captivated watching the Apollo. And she's all the way in the back, and you wouldn't see her unless the highlighter highlighted her. So I just loved this campaign because it was striking um, especially, you know, with the climate right now with, um, with Me Too and um, just bringing about, you know, women's issues. And, and then also I just love the double meaning of highlight, you know, highlighting history and using a highlighter. I thought this was a really great campaign. We get questions from clients a lot about brand versus product advertising and how do you have a campaign that works on both levels. And I think this demonstrates when you know, a great product campaign communicating the value of the product itself can work to make you feel something different about the brand. So, I mean, it is, uh, people, it's possible. It's possible to do campaigns that make you feel and move the needle on product. Yeah, very inspiring. Yeah, what I love about it, as the late, great Leo Burnett said, great advertising and marketing focuses on the inherent drama of the product. And just by the fact that this highlighter is used to bring the background in many situations to the foreground, it highlights, as Hallie said, the brand side of it and then also that product feature. So, yeah, it did, did a great job with it. It's brilliant because now we want to use Stabilo highlighters. Yeah. It's also very brave. highlight everything. It's brave not only in the fact that the subject matter that they're tackling, but also the fact it really isn't a testimonial to their product. It's really them using their product to tell a story that isn't necessarily theirs. Brian, how about you? What trends have been inspiring you lately? I think what I've been really struck by, and it feeds off what we were just talking about, the climate that we're in, is the responsibility and the response of designers and illustrators to the climate and their response to the news that we are inundated with on a daily basis. At the time of recording this week, the big news story was the Trump and Putin summit in Helsinki. And time and time again throughout the past few years i've really been impressed with time magazine and their covers they're simple they're on point they tend to not even have a headline on them and they say so much uh, with this latest one being a composite image of trump and putin's portraits and there's an eeriness to it because they strangely fit together <laughs> very seamlessly uh, very recently as well during the controversy surrounding the immigrant children being separated from parents at the border 
where it was a composite image of the young child looking up and crying that was all across you know, all social and news outlets and President Trump just looking down. And the idea that you have this child who is clearly in pain and, and frightened and having an adult just looking down and not having any sort of re- reaction or response is a very poetic and powerful combination of, of, the, of these two extreme emotional responses with the simple headline, Welcome to America. Um, and, and even before that, throughout the, throughout the campaign, they were very, uh, you know, with the meltdown, and then a, a few weeks later, as it got worse, there was a, you know, a, a sequel to that cover, which I thought was fun, and, and with the whole Stormy Daniels. I mean, we can go on and on. And so what this all brings up, and we've had some conversations around the office, is the response responsibility and the impact that illustrators and designers have in the political world and, and their response to political issues. And, you know, there's been a lot of, you know, certain uh, critics have said, you know, the news media and, and these political cartoonists and commentators are being particularly harsh on this president. But, you know, we, we've had the conversation, is that true? Well, I think what, you know, we've talked about about in the office is obviously there's nothing new. Like political satire has been around pretty much as long as media has been around, you know, in in sort of modern times, you know, just thinking about SNL. I mean, ever since their inception, they've been making fun of presidents like Ford and, you know, and Reagan and others and, you know, pretty much everybody. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I mean, you look back to political cartoons from the 1800s, you know, even in this country. Um, you know, it's nothing new. It's just, you know, obviously we've had a lot of conversation about response. You know, other presidents, yeah, I mean, from time to time you get a comment about the media, but the current president being potentially the most media savvy president in the sense that, you know, he's actually participating in the conversation, being so active on Twitter, you know, creating his own channels, um, you know, thinking constantly about PR strategy optics and, and, and getting out there, um, you know, and, and being very vocal about his distrust and dislike of, cer- of specific media outlets. You know, it's really changed I think, popular opinion in a big way um, with his supporters, I should say, you know, their their opinion around media and, and, you know, probably in a greater sense, like where they get their news from, you know, certainly, you know, we, you know, media bias is also nothing new, but, you know, it's been highlighted in such a big way in the last two years that, it, you know, it, it does feel at least that there is a societal shift around media and conversation around the media. And what I remember at the beginning of his presidency was that a lot of media publications came out and asked, what should designers do now? There was this call to action that designers have this position in society to lead. And what is that now that no one is really doing that from the top? So regardless of your political affiliation, you saw the movement that Obama created that was very positive. And Trump has his movement as well, but it leans in a very different direction. And you saw that people were able to get behind Obama's movement in a way that was very visual to tell that story. And you're seeing that in a very different way now. I think that's true. You know, and I think that both scenarios show that design has a very important role to play in the world. Um, perhaps the most important role to play in the world right now. You can't help but to see in every magazine, you know, how to have conversations with family members that might have different political views than you. I mean, this has been going on since the election. I mean, people were dreading. I remember people were dreading going to Thanksgiving that year because they were like, oh, no, there's the uncle that voted for the opposite candidate. And, you know, just not knowing how to navigate that without severing relationships. And I, I think that design, what design does well is, you know, it's able to, you know, we talk about this a lot, but, you know, you have the ability to visual storytell in a way that that communicates feeling and emotion without necessarily pointing the finger and saying you're wrong. You know, it's sort of being provocative, creating art, allowing people to respond to it and, and at least open up the conversation. To bring it back to the time cover, I feel like, I mean, I just think about the phrase, you know, pictures worth a thousand words. And I think with those covers, it, it expresses, I think, so much of what we're feeling and it's just, you know, the news cycle is insane. Every day it's something, right? And I feel like when I see the time cover, it just so accurately and succinctly um, 
captures captures what I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And yeah. um, And I feel like that's what resonates with so many people with these, with these covers, just what they're feeling in that moment, that week, that day that something happened. And um, like you said, Brian, sometimes there's not even a headline. It's just a photo or a composite or an illustration. And it just captures, yeah, what we're feeling at that. Well, I've that always felt that's what the genius of political cartoonists are. The fact they have one panel to really sum up an incredibly in-depth situation or conversation or controversy. And they do mm. it so, as you said, succinctly. And it's it's truly an art. And it's almost it kind of goes with the, the pen is mightier than the sword. You know, that what they're doing with, you know, these sometimes very simple illustrations or photos or statements Um as you said, in a news cycle where there is just so much to respond to from day to day. And as from a publishing standpoint, the fact that they have this one week to sum up so much of this, I, I do feel like that it's almost the complexity of the news is what's le- leading to the simplicity of these statements and in, and these covers because there's so much to be to be said. So it's um, much more power is being laid in, in these simple images. I feel like the best art doesn't, necessarily push you lead you yeah it, it lets you decide right mm-hmm. let, here here's the evidence here's what's happened here's what's your reaction to it and then that's when the conversation starts and I feel like that to me makes really good art not like I'm gonna hit you over the head with this is what I think so this reminds me of actually something that Brian brought up a few weeks ago he was talking about the 1969 hearing where Mr. Rogers testified in front of the Senate subcommittee um, where he was pleading for you know not for funding to be cut to public broadcasting. And, you know, much in the same way that the Time magazine covers do it, you know, it, it's sort of a tonal um, shift. You know, I think that there, there are times in our society where the discourse becomes really negative and, you know, on both sides. And I think that it's really hard to figure out how, where's our entry point? How do we even begin to make change, begin to get back to a place of civility and have conversation that's meaningful, you know, how can we like kind of bring tempers down a little bit in order to do something productive? You know, Brian, you know, you can talk a little bit about the example with Mr. Rogers. Absolutely. So in this hearing in 1969, Fred Rogers was single-handedly responsible for saving the funding of public broadcasting. As he presented his case to Senator Pastore, he, he, he told the story of not facts and figures, but in the innate need of a child to learn through trust and through emotion. And this senator was clearly just done with the day. And, you know, it really seemed like the axe was swinging for public broadcasting. But as soon as, you know, Mr. Rogers began to talk and, and told him the importance of the education, at the time, you know, the show Mr. Rogers itself was very avant-garde in the fact that uh, you know, all of the all of children's broadcasting was clowns throwing pies in in each other's face, and it was loud and, in a sense, crass. And he came in at a place of quiet teaching and understanding. He, you know, and and silence. You know, letting speaking to a child. I don't want to say on their level, but letting things process. And and it comes down to that word of understanding. Um, I, something that really struck me when I saw this documentary was, you know, he wanted to show a child what a minute looked like, and they literally just sat and will let a timer go around mm. for a minute. That was, you would never see that on TV back mm. then, and it, and we've come in a way you would never see it now. Yeah. So he, he was definitely it was a, you know it was a weird thing to say, but there was almost like a punk rock approach to his oh, yeah. his. Uh, approach to children's television. He was wearing a cardigan. I mean. He was yeah. wearing a cardigan, <laughs> all made by his mother. And um, but it was a, such a striking moment in this documentary where the senator who is clearly finished and didn't need to hear anything else, but it was almost like the approach that Mr. Rogers had, it, that it still applies to us as an adult. Let me come to you about this topic from a place of levity I'm not here to judge you or feel like I'm bestowing knowledge about you, but I am going to educate you hmm. about the importance of my approach, what I'm doing, and what public broadcasting is allowing me to have the platform to do. I'm constantly concerned about what our children are seeing. 
and for 15 years I have tried in this country and Canada to present what I feel is a meaningful expression of care. Do you narrate it? I'm the host, yes. And I do all the puppets, and I write all the music, and I write all the scripts. Well, I'm supposed to be a pretty tough guy, and this is the first time I've had goosebumps for the last two days. <laughs> well, I'm grateful, not only for your goosebumps, but for your interest in, in our kind of communication. Could I tell you the words of one of the songs which I feel is very important? Yes. This has to do with that good feeling of control, which I feel that the children need to know is there. And it starts out, what do you do with the mad that you feel? And that first line came straight from a child. I work with children do doing puppets in, in very personal communication with small groups. What do you do with the mad that you feel? When you feel so mad, you could bite. When the whole wide world seems oh so wrong and nothing you do seems very right. What do you do? Do you punch a bag? Do you pound some clay or some dough? Do you round up friends for a game of tag or see how fast you go? It's great to be able to stop when you've planned a thing that's wrong and be able to do something else instead and think this song. I can stop when I want to, can stop when I wish, can stop, 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 any time. And what a good feeling to feel like this and know that the feeling is really mine. Know that there's something deep inside that helps us become what we can. For a girl can be someday a lady and a boy can be someday a man. I think it's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. <clears throat> Looks like you just earned the $20 million. <laughs> <laughs> and the 360 that the senator took in these moments of the statement were so powerful to me to see. And it, I do think in the firestorm of disagreements and what side are you on and who said what and who's accusing who of what, it really does come down to what these covers are doing. And it's a place of, as Jen, as you said, we're presenting the place that we're in. Like we're, we're not going to sugarcoat it, but we're also going to present it to you in a way that opens the conversation. And I do think that's something, conversation has almost begun to get a negative connotation. It is you are either this or you are that, and this is your stance. I feel like the place of debate in a positive way is has, in particular, in the past four years. You know, as we were going through the election, and we're now nearly halfway through this administration, is really it's almost disappearing. It's disappeared in the fact that there isn't discourse. You're on one team or another yeah, team, and exactly. we forget we're all in this together. And I think, you know, it does, there are politics involved in that, but I do think it's related to technology in that there's so much power behind the keyboard, empowering the ignorant sometimes to say what they want without the facts opinions. or uninformed opinions to say what they want versus doing it in a crowd of people in a public hearing or in a community gathering. You're not going to do that. You're well, going to make which, sure. And the conversation, you know, allows for us to fact check and to make sure that sources are reputable. And I think that, you know, with all the conversation about fake news over the last couple of years, I mean, the reality is there is a lot of fake news out there. And, you know, on, you know that supports whatever point you want to believe in, you can find fake news to support it. And that's why, obviously, there's been a lot of conversation about good journalism that's fact-checked and, you know, reputable sources and things like that. And, you know, the conversation about where are you really getting your news from? Are you spending a lot of time on Facebook that, you know, is allowing you to get served, um, you know, uh, content that might be created by content farms in other places? I mean, we just, you know, are on the heels of the intelligence community's decision or observation that there was meddling in our election. And a big part of that was the content that was created and placed on U.S. social media channels to sway opinion, in addition to, obviously, what was done to actually tamper with results. 
So um, it's influence and it's results. And, you know, if, if you don't open it up to conversation and ask questions about where your news is coming from, you know, you, you're responsible for, you know, taking um, credibility for where you read that story and, um, and the validity of that if you're going to make that a part of your argument. Also, just the, the power of design and con- conversation and communication because Time Magazine doing these covers they do go viral because everybody hears about them one way or another, be it agreeing or disagreeing with what it's presenting. But at the end of the day, it's also an incredible marketing tool for them because that they are getting the attention that they are in a sense sinking out by by creating these images. But it, in terms, but it also is you know elevating their platform to it in the sea of articles and news sites and news outlets it, it, it they're rising above the the clutter definitely and no it's almost they've made that their brand where people are waiting for the next one like what is time magazine going to how will they respond how will they respond to an xyz that happened this week hallie that reminds me of a conversation we had recently about the exodus of the millennial generation leaving social media platforms yeah, I mean, ever since you know the beginning of the year, there's been a lot of conversation about how different generations are using um, various pieces of media, and particularly with social media. Um, you know, in the last few months, there's been some interesting statistics that have come out around millennial usage of social media, and not just which channels, but as a whole, you know, adoption and um, departure rates actually, and what they're finding. Um, you know, and there are various articles out there. USA Today actually published something last week about how millennials are actually um, leaving social media at a rapid rate. Their, their headline was, new study shows a third of millennials are quitting social media. So again, you know, where we had thought they had been migrating to other platforms, like perhaps they were on Facebook and now they're on Snapchat, that's not what the data is showing. Um, so, you know, they're, you know, according to this article and some others that we came across, they're actually leaving altogether. And, you know, a lot of it has to do with distrust. And, you know, as we were just talking about, you know, it has to do with the quality of the information that's on these channels. A few weeks ago, you know, uh, Procter & Gamble actually came out and said that they were going to, for all of their brands, they were going to be, um, you know, ceasing to work with any influencers that bought followers. And I think that this is a real sea change, you know, both from the user standpoint as well as the brand standpoint, um, because what we're seeing is that they've had enough. Um, they've had enough of fake news, whether it's, you know, fake influencers, fake followers, you know, fake articles, you know, sources that are not reputable. Part of the strength and the reason uh, that Time, you know, the Time Magazine cover- covers have been as successful as they have been is because I do think that there is a trend for people to want to get their news from reputable sources again. It'll be very interesting to see what happens in the next few years here. There was sort of this love affair with digital um, for the better part of the last decade. And I think that people are really, um, you know, getting savvy, particularly younger generations, millennials, Gen Z, are getting savvy about the quality of the information that they're getting there, as well as how much of their time they're really willing to dedicate to being um, in front of social media. You know, obviously, there have been a lot of studies recently as well about the state of mental health and how, you know, that's been affected, you know, the longer you spend in front of a screen and in particular, the longer you spend in front of a social media app. Um, you know, there are a lot of studies that suggest that you're more lonely and depressed when you get off after a couple, even even as little as 30 to 45 minutes than when you got on. And, you know, and we are seeing upward, you know, major, major upswings in, um, you know, mental health issues, you know, across all generations for people that, you know, spend their time in front of screens and are spending a lot of time in front of social media apps. So I, I'm really interested to see what happens in the next few years. I mean, for us doing a lot of work um, with these channels, you know, I think it's going to continue to be a part of a media mix for most clients, particularly in the B2C world um, and the not-for-profit world. It's reason to question your media mix and think a little bit about, you know, how are we really putting our message where our audience wants it to be? Not just where they're at, but where they want it to be and where it can be best received. Because let's put it this way, if you're somebody who's spending a lot of time on Facebook and you feel more depressed when you get off, you know, And let's say you see a branded message while you're on there. Does that branded message all of a sudden have a negative connotation because of your feelings about 
yourself by the time you get off of a channel. So it's kind of interesting to think about what's the right way to present branded content or ads in those environments now, given what we're learning about how people's emotional state is when they get off and how do you make that successful and what should the tone of your messaging be if you're going to be there? I think there's just, there's a lot to think about. What we're talking about is a hedonistic mood that can be created so that marketing can work in the right way. So yeah, when you talk about a hedonistic culture, there's this TED talk actually by Cal Newport and he talks about social media and he makes this, he draws this parallel to going to the casino. And so what he, he says is when you go to a casino, you know, you're, you're thinking you're going to win. When you go on social media, you think that you're going to get likes. You're going to check how many people liked your latest posts. Um, you're going to feel better coming out of it, but that doesn't always happen. And so like you go into these experiences thinking like, Hey, I'm going to get some kind of reward. But like if you don't get it this time, maybe you're going to get it next time. And so you again, you're just dangling that carrot, dangling that carrot. But most of the time, much like in a casino, you're not going to win. So, you know, it's it's this idea that, yes, it's very addictive. It's set up to be addictive, which is part of the reason why it's really, you know, a scary thing for children. You know, if you don't win, I mean, think about how you feel when you lose a lot of money in a casino or something like that. It doesn't feel good. You know, so if that's the feeling you're getting every time you're exiting a social media platform, you know, is it successful for brands to really place their messages into that experience or is there a better way um, to get your brand to convert, to actually make your audience feel the way you want it to feel? Um, So I think it's a question of if you're going to be there, what's the most successful thing to do knowing the consumer mindset? And, you know, maybe to question your media mix altogether to just really examine is social media the right place for me to be with my messaging or are there other things that I should be thinking about that could be more successful in moving the needle you know in regard to the KPIs I'm most interested in I feel like it comes down to authenticity and it um it it kind of brings it back to the Fred Rogers testimony to the senator and I think it's interesting that his opening line in his testimony was that the first emotion that a child learns is trust and trust and authenticity those two things go together and I feel like with messaging with social media with news people just want authenticity they right and isn't that the thought that that's the opposite of fake it's interesting when you talk about you know one of the first emotions a child learns which is trust and then you're seeing this younger generation it's an issue of trust Right. Yeah. I don't I don't you know, I don't know if I can trust you. I don't know if I can trust this message. If I don't trust the message, how can I trust this product? I think it all comes back to that. If you're a company or a brand or just be yourself, be be authentic. And I think that's the best advice that you could follow. And I and I think people people automatically I think they sniff that out if you're being true or not. And it's so prevalent, too, in posts that are now clearly sponsored. You know, you, these influencers and bloggers where you know, they have to disclose the fact that this is a sponsored post. It's the complete opposite of authenticity. You know, they're, you're an influencer and you're supposed to be sharing, like, here are the things that I find interesting that I want to share with you. But that it's, um, the two worlds have come together to... to poison the pond basically (laughs) you know that when Instagram first came out it was really a gallery and sharing images and then quickly it turned into a popularity contest how many likes you're getting on a post what is the engagement and and how are you sponsoring or or promoting a product and and promoting the certain lifestyle and as Hallie said purchased likes it really quickly became toxic in the sense of of its you know my friend Christian and I were recently talking about this we went back to our very first image that we posted you know that for me I think it was like 2013 perhaps and the first image I had had like nine likes you know and it's so funny to like look back and it was just a simple discourse and the comments that people were making it really is you know and as and I should disclose I'm still a fan of Instagram I, I really enjoy it I get a lot of inspiration from it I've you know, I, I've talked about this before, you know, you meet people with common, you know, interests, you know, being an artist and, and being exposed to you know, different brands that I wouldn't normally be exposed to. But I've definitely become very wary of it um, from people that I follow, people that I even know personally, what it's done to them and their approach to their posts. Um, it, I think that's a great example is knowing somebody 
and then seeing what they're putting out. You know, Hallie, you always say you're comparing your everyday to someone's highlight reel and kind of knowing a peek behind the curtain. And, and so it really does make you question what is authentic of these people you may not know personally. Um, you know, there's been articles out there, you know, the, the real life of these influencers, you know, they're, you know, they have all of this debt and you think all this travel they, they're doing is so glamorous and it really isn't because it's like there, there's no stability and it's all about, you know, as we said, promoting these products that they may not even be interested in. It's really, the <laughs> lack of a better term, it's almost like they become these puppets of social media that's just like, here's my platform mm-hmm. and I have a cold and I'm using... Right. XYZ cold medicine. It's Their like, life becomes a commercial. It becomes a commercial. Yeah. Something as simple as having a cold is suddenly a vignette on their nightstand. You know, and you, and you find <laughs> and out that, that post is sponsored by NyQuil. By, or I was going to say, right? or, yeah. yeah, exactly, or a certain drugstore. So it, it really it has become, it's lost a little bit, I should say, being polite of its soul. Yeah, uh, that's, it's interesting because I feel that's the conflict I, I definitely have come across just the, you know, before I feel like it was so much more obvious, especially in journalism, that editorial and advertorial, it was like separation of church and state. Those two never mixed, right? And now you're seeing, like you said, it's it's almost like they've come and they're, they're meshing together. It's and confusing. It's very confusing. The messaging is confusing. And when I was blogging, that was something that I, I just had an internal conflict with, which is why I never did sponsored posts. And everything that I did a review was 100% my opinion, you know, and it was never um, sponsored by a corporation. Well, you know, if I liked a certain lipstick, it was because I really liked mm-hmm. that lipstick because I felt like, again, it comes down to trust. That trust I had with my readers, you have to be intentional about building that trust and keeping that trust. And that was something that was really sacred to me. So. And when well, I would read other articles, you know, bloggers writing something, and the moment I found out it was sponsored, it it's like, it's like I just looked at that with another filter, looked at that article or that recommendation or that review, and I, I couldn't trust it anymore because I thought well, you're it getting was paid influenced. for this. It was Absolutely, and hence the term. The sadness of the demise of Instagram is twofold. One, what you guys are talking about, the destruction of authenticity and character, and then second is the addition of so many features to Instagram that were previously not there and changing that platform into something that's completely not. And a lot of that's because it's owned by Facebook. We heard today that now on Instagram, they'll start notifying users when their friends are on Instagram and Mm -hmm. active at that exact moment, which is obviously a feature from Facebook. So now it becomes something where you can see what people are doing. you know, that's always been there with stories, but now it's like a, a true feature of the platform. So I do think it's sad. I think a lot of these technology firms just think the solution is to add, add, add versus optimize and innovate. Mm-hmm. Very different things. Well, and they think that the user wants this really expansive experience. And I think the Instagram user base actually doesn't want that. They want a Unless visual, it's changing. They w- well... It could be. I guess my my opinion based on, you know, traditional usage of Instagram is that the user there wants to use it for inspiration or to kind of use it as a browser almost. You know, there's a lot of conversation in the travel industry about how Instagram is actually one of the top places to go for people to book their trips to places, especially when they're more remote because they're looking for where do I go? How do I know how to get around Oman or whatever it is? You know, and so they're looking for other people that have been there to see what they're doing. Um, they don't necessarily want that to be the place that they're having full conversations. You know, they might want to share something with um, a group of friends, but they don't want to necessarily have that be the you know the place where they're posting as they would on Facebook. Um, so you know, again, just a gut reaction based on you know historical usage and heavy influencer users that, you know, we've chronicled over the years and used as part of campaigns. Um, I'll, I'll be curious to see what happens with heavy users of Instagram, if they're going to like some of these features or if it's just going to start feeling like a mini Facebook um, and it's going to push them to either a new platform or maybe just off social media altogether.
So the conversation around authenticity has made me think of something I've been studying recently, which is how artificial intelligence is changing marketing, specifically in the world of branding. So imagine this scenario, you're planning a trip, you use your AI platform to help you get your ticket. So it may predetermine which airport you go to. So being in Northeast Ohio, you have two options, Akron or Cleveland. You may have a preference of Akron because it's easier to get in and out of, but the AI will then choose the Cleveland airport because it's closer to where you live. Also, the carrier then would be determined based on AI. The time, the seat, the price, all these things would be determined based on AI. Also thinking about rental car, you know, or a taxi, it might select it based on fuel efficiency or price when you know you only want to use one certain type of service. Um, then it needs to choose your, your hotel. You might have a preference for a very specific hotel, but instead it chooses a different one because of what's available. And then when you're on vacation, those restaurants that you want to choose, you ask AI to help you choose the best one, but instead it chooses it only in customer reviews and it takes you to a restaurant that you don't like because it's a different cuisine that you prefer. So all these things, you know, that I've went over are really negative ways of using AI, but that's what happens when it's a machine is predicting things um, without having enough information about you and your preferences. What's happening there is that AI will start to really focus on very specific items of products, such as features, price, and performance, leaving branding completely out of the mix. So what's going to happen is right now there's so many different platforms for AI, but it's going to really come down to the new big three. So you'll see IBM, Google, and Amazon. I don't think Apple's going to have a hold in AI as much as they do right now. Surrey will still be around, but I think Surrey will be using a different platform because there's so much more advancement with IBM, Google, and Amazon in that area. So you're going to see a lot of these smaller platforms go away and people will start to build more loyalty around these platforms such as Google or Amazon because they've been using them for so long. The complexity of, of w what this is all creating and the new environment that it's seeding is, is fascinating, but also there is a sense of uncertainty. So what would this new frontier in a sense mean for in the world of marketing? In our industry right now, there's this fear that marketing is dead, that brand awareness and recognition will be diminished because people are going to focus just on the product features, price, and performance. So the whole idea of a multi-channel or omni-channel experience goes away because AI is now the medium and also the channel for the messaging and sales and distribution. So it does paint a pretty sad future for what marketing could be because, you know, we talk about Yelp reviews and things like that, but AI will be very dependent on customer reviews and ratings because that's what will lead them to the products that you are looking for. And it's really that brand loyalty is no longer customer loyalty, but instead it's loyalty to the AI platforms. What I guess it concerns me in a sense is if you're saying Yelp reviews are what's driving that, much like we were just talking earlier about inauthenticity, how, what is to say that one angry Yelp review, you know, because we all know that there are these ext extreme opinions and a lot of times it'll be one person, um, as I said earlier, poisoning the pond, doesn't af negatively affect uh, a business because, you know, does one review, you know, ruin it for everybody, I guess, is the question. Each AI platform will use different sources, you know, and some will be more reputable than others. You know, it could be Yelp versus Google. The, the thing that I think about often is, will everything be based on consumer reports? You know, something that has been proven over time. And again, and there's that, not that, that uncertainty, uncertainty of what is, accurate uh, for I just happen to know that people there's a pastime of like posting the craziest Yelp review you can just to you know it's almost like yeah. a, a underculture that's happening so there's almost you know it's just funny to hear that we hear we have this technology that is dependent upon these reviews and while at the same time these reviews are actually not even real mm -hmm. I was gonna say what about fake reviews do you guys leave reviews like you personally? I never have, and I never read them either. That's what's kind of interesting to you. I really don't. I, I don't think I've ever left a review, which is funny because I do use Yelp a lot, especially if I'm in an, a neighborhood I'm not familiar mm. with, and I will go on and I will, I won't read the reviews, but I will be influenced if there's like a two-star versus a four-star. Mm -hmm. Now, I will say I do read reviews like with products, um, online products, so... 
often the reviews that I read are just to get more information about the product, not whether they liked it or not. So, for mm-hmm. example, if I have a question about the size of something or whatever, then I might re- look mm-hmm. at that. And I think this conversation right here just is testament to how differently people use anything, use reviews, use the Internet, use Instagram. That's what's so difficult, I would imagine, for all of this new technology is to somehow streamline its usability for a world who, you know, just like everybody brushes their teeth differently, everybody uses technology so differently and it's so customized to the way that they live and, and interact with the, with the, within the environments and the technology. And it's really word of mouth that's the most powerful and that would not be included in here unless you're pulling in data based on your, your friends and your followers through social media and what they're saying. But still, as we talked about earlier, there are influencers that are being paid to talk about products. So that then affects us in a different way versus the one-on-one conversation you have with someone and they recommend a restaurant to you. So I, I do think that area is um, very interesting in how these different platforms are going to pull in the data because where is it coming from? It, it's just like what we're going through right now, fake news. If we don't know where this data is coming in that's feeding and training the machine through machine learning then we won't know how valid those results are for our lifestyle our needs our wants i think that's an an interesting area where somebody could really capitalize is branding of where a person gets data so trusted data sources i feel like it goes back to what we were discussing earlier in terms of authenticity and trust and eric you were just speaking about that word of mouth recommendation, right? For places like a restaurant or a place to shop. And when you trust a friend or trust someone, when you trust their opinion, that's going to matter the most. And I feel like that question, is marketing dead? No, it's not. I think because of that natural human need and craving for authenticity. And when you think about marketing as digital and analog, it's really the analog experience that we're talking about. It's having that experience that people can feel, that they can have an emotional connection to. You know, the brick and mortar, the the flagship experience that brands offer. We talked earlier this week um, here at Charcomino about Nike's new shop called Nike by Melrose. And it just offers a very different experience that's community-based and all the products are curated for that, that community. You know, that becomes more important for marketers as they think about brands. But as they think about AI, they do need to understand algorithm that it's going to focus more on those reviews and ratings, the product price, features, and performance. It's something that it has always been important for brands, but it will be ever more important with AI. So if you really want to have that emotional connection, that's when you have to think about your, your analog experiences and what you create there. So it starts to look more like science and art with AI because you have to focus on those very specific features of the product. Um, Loyalty does become more difficult because you aren't going to be able to have a aspect of that with AI because it will focus on those other areas. The one thing that I am saddened by is this idea that the relationship with the customer has changed because it's going to be the, the relationship that the customer has with their AI platform versus the brand. So having that emotional connection to a brand will start to diminish unless we're able to have customers engage with brands in these analog experiences. Of course, if, if they have a great experience with a product, they're going to feel better about it. But that whole storytelling aspect, the authenticity of the brand, the purpose behind what it stands for, the mission, the vision, those won't be at the forefront with AI. Despite all of that, you know, when I listen to this, wouldn't you say that it's really dependent on the user and how they interact with this technology? Like, it doesn't have to be a 100% investment in, like, they, this technology is now going to give me all information I need about X product. From our perspective and my personal perspective, it will always be a balance of art and science. So that means understanding your customer and having empathy with them and understanding their point of view and their life experiences and really their needs and wants. So every customer has a different set of criteria. So as marketers, we need to understand that so that we can reach them. And for those customers that are extremely reliant on AI, well, you know how to 
manipulate or manage the mm-hmm. algorithm. Mm-hmm. For those that want that emotional connection, it's different. It comes back to psychology and understanding the human experience. Yeah, it's it's incredible. It's really it's just the whole world of customer versus product and really does become, you know, versus. It's almost like you're navigating this uh, strange new terrain on a daily basis in terms of how you are interacting with not only brands, but the actual products. bigger boat goes to Nelson Mandela. The world recently celebrated his 100th birthday uh, this past Wednesday, July 18th. And um, we all know him. He's the freedom fighter, anti-apartheid revolutionary, and president of South Africa. Um, The world had a huge celebration. This was in Johannesburg. And um, President Obama gave the Nelson Mandela uh, lecture. So it was quite an event and very inspiring. We're hearing from different world leaders, um, including the new president of South Africa. And I really recommend you guys look up all the speeches. It was just a really uplifting, if you're looking for an uplifting experience. This episode, My Bigger Boat, goes out to one of my favorite cool hunters, Jonathan Morgan. In addition to being an amazing drummer and great friend, Jonathan is a human-centered designer who explores the shifting landscape of product and service design and emerging technology. He also has his own podcast called Design Everywhere. Listen to his podcast on Apple iTunes or Google Play. This week, My Bigger Boat goes out to the cast of Pose. And the reason that My Bigger Boat goes out to the cast of Pose is because I have always been a really big fan of the documentary Paris is Burning. If you haven't seen it, you should definitely go see it. Um, But it details the ball culture in New York. Um, It was shot in the 80s, but the ball culture had been going on for several decades before that. And um, it's this incredible um, subculture of people that wanted to basically be something different and they you know would dress up there were lots of different categories Um, and it's if you've ever heard the term voguing which I'm sure you have um, it's where that came from so Madonna actually would go to the balls back in the late 70s early 80s I believe and she befriended a number of the people that were involved in these houses and um, some of them were actually featured in her Blonde Ambition tour, I believe. Brian, correct me if I'm wrong there. That is correct. That would be Lewis and Jose. <laughs> and um, it's it was just an incredible, incredible culture. I've heard rumors that there are still remnants of this happening in New York. I'm really interested in finding you, do out. You, and if not, I would imagine this would resurrect. I mean, I know the drag culture, which has always been, you know, a strong thread in another subculture, we should say, but I just would wonder if this, this show is going to, you know, reinvigorate. Yeah. I bet it will. I mean, yeah, I'm curious. I'm curious to see what happens about it, but with that, but, um, but what I think is really amazing about this show is it's actually the largest cast of transgendered cast members um, that have ever appeared in one, um, any any media property, so one show, one movie, anything like that, um, and it chronicles like the the 1980s in New York in the balls. Does a really good job, I think, of showing what they were like at that time and how the houses worked and the types of people that found themselves in this in this um, world. Um, and I think the cast is just they're amazing, and it's really fun to watch. And I'm excited because it was renewed for another season. So congratulations to everyone and the whole uh, American Horror Story family. (laughs) I'm excited to watch season two. So my bigger boat this episode goes out to one of my personal design heroes, Tom Brown, founder of Tom Brown New York, of course. I first discovered Tom Brown in 2009 when I was creating one of my first lines of illustrations. And I was trying to figure out how... um, 
what was happening in men's fashion and, and how I wanted to model the way some of my figures were working. And I came across this designer and was absolutely fascinated by his use of proportion in the in suiting for men, the flooded pants, and just the use of um, really simple pattern and texture. Um, his past few shows um, that he's been presenting have become more and more incredibly bizarrest and delicious, and I love it. But at the at the root of everything is really this classic suiting. And what's, what was such a fun surprise this past spring was to see the entire team of the Cavs wearing Tom Brown's signature um, suits and carrying his bags and the flooded pants. And you have you know, LeBron James, who's, what, 6'9", wearing these suits that you usually see these very kind of uh, demure models wearing. So it was just really a, a fascinating moment of uh, fashion crossing over into the sporting world. And he officially is crossing over even more as he's recently announced uh, his brand's partnership with the professional soccer club at, for Barcelona. So beginning with the 2019 season um, and spanning the course of three years, Tom Brown will be the official provider of the team's off-field tailored and formal wear uniforms um, during um, the championship leagues as well as away matches. So looking forward to seeing how that evolution uh, of, you know, is presented. And again, I just, I really love the idea of um, high fashion finding its voice in, in different worlds that you don't normally see of it. That is my bigger boat. This episode of Open Swim is in support of our friends at the National Museum of the Great Lakes in Toledo, Ohio, an engaging experience that reveals the varied and fascinating history of the Great Lakes, which make up 84% of all the fresh water in North America. Recently, Shark and Minnow had the chance to visit the museum and absolutely loved the experience. We recommend that you make plans to visit soon. Learn more about the National Museum of the Great Lakes at inlandseas.org. Open Swim is brought to you by Shark and Minnow on the web at sharkandminnow.com. On Twitter and Instagram, we are at Shark and Minnow. Technical support and audio production by Eugene Bueller. HR oversight by Marcia Ciccone. Fashion policing by Felicia Winfrey.